So we're, we're going to talk about our values, things that we believe, things that we hold close to our hearts. And if you want to know what your, value, your values are, you can uh, ask yourself a couple questions like, what am I passionate about? What makes me angry? What, what boils my blood? You know, just, just some, what am I passionate about? What boils my blood? And that'll help you to find out what your values are, what you're passionate about. Um, a lot of churches uh, have values. The problem is sometimes our values that we have and the things we practice don't match. Like if you go to a church's website, they'll usually have 10 core values uh, on their website, and you hit those, and, and, and in almost every church, one of the values is people. Well, amen, right? You, you'd think a church has, they value people, and uh, unchurched and, and, and church, and, and uh, just to give you an idea, of sometimes we don't practice what we preach, I was in a church in Branson a couple of weeks ago, and uh, you know, of course, one of their values is unchurched, lost people. So I walk in the church, and as I walk in the church, you know, you're walking in the parking lot, a couple other families go with us, we walk in the front door, and no one shake my hand. I mean, not, 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 they, you know, now, here at Real Life, we hug, right? How many have ever been hugged by Janelle? Raise your hand. All right? So, so they didn't shake my hand there. I went on into the coffee area, and then I went around where the restrooms were, and then I decided I want to walk in a kids' area. And so I walk in a kids' area, because, you know, I'm interested in what they're doing for kids, and no one said boo. So I go sit down, I get up, and we walk out, and there's nothing. I mean, that's kind of the way it's, I've been to like four churches in the city, and that seems to be the reception, the normal reception. And uh, so, so sometimes we, we say we value things, but a lot of times we don't practice what we value, what we say we value. So in reality, we really don't value those things. As a matter of fact, uh, a lot of churches just, they grab 10 values, they put them up there, they never really look at their individual church and see what they value and then put them on. They just, well, a popular preacher said these 10 things, so this is what I'm going to put up there because it's, it's popular, right? So they put them up on the, on the website, and they really don't even follow those values. And so we're going to look at what we at Real Life, RLC, value. And of course, as you can see up on the screen, the very first thing we value is evangelism, all right? We, we love to evangelize, you know, just to really reach out. The, a couple of huge, huge ideas that we have, uh, and we stole them. Uh, about 15 years ago, I was at a preacher's conference, and this preacher got up, and he preached on 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 22. And Paul there, and this is the big idea, we'll do anything this side of sin to reach people for Christ. And you've heard me say that many, many times uh, so far in this, in this church. But Paul his idea is I, I'll, I'll do anything and everything besides sin to reach people. He says, I'll become a Jew to reach a Jew. I'll become a non-Jew, Gentile, to reach a Gentile. I'll become under the law, not under the law. I become all things to all men that I might win some. And so that's kind of our big idea around here. Another big idea we put on the screen, it's at, we just got this about six years ago from Andy Stanley's book entitled Deep and Wide fantastic. I gave it to all the leaders of the, the people that helped start the church. And it goes like this, something like this, this saying I got from there. It says, to reach people that no one's reaching, 
we will do what no one else is doing. Okay? In other words, this area is, uh, is reaching about 17% of people in this area go to church on any given Sunday. That's the statistics that the Southern Baptists have gathered, and they're fantastic at statistics. So 17%, well, what we want to do is reach the 82%. That's a pretty big pool to reach from, right? To dive into this 82% and reach those people that no one else is reaching. So, so in order to do that, we have to do things that no one else is doing. And so we started that, and we had these five big days, these big events, and we have big events that everybody has. Well, then the difference is we invite them to church, and then we give away free stuff. And churches, you know, just look down upon us that we're doing that. But they say, you're, you're bribing people to come to church. And uh, I don't care. <laughs> I just don't care what they think, right? I'm not, trying, I'm not trying to get their people over here so they can look down on us that we just don't dress like them, we don't act like them, we don't preach like them. doesn't matter. Because we're after the, 40, or the 82 to 83% that don't go to church, and we just want them under the sound of the gospel because the Bible says, and we'll dive into this, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. All right, And, and, and so we want that word coming down on people's ears. So, so, so that's just kind of where we stand. And so the next two, this is part one, next Sunday's part two, and we'll draw uh, the net and really talk about next Sunday about evangelism. But let's talk about why evangelize. Why evangelize? Uh, many Christians uh, around the world, many churches are around the world, but very few actually evangelize. Very few evangelize. Now, what do I mean by evangelism? Evangelism basically is presentation of the gospel, communication of the gospel of Christ, the good news, the death, the burial, and the resurrection that he came for sinners. Okay? Specifically, he died for you. Presentation of the gospel. Jesus died for you. His blood was shed to pay for your sin so that you can have eternal life. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now that... That's not just for the preacher to present the gospel. It's just not for the church leaders. It's for everyone. As we see in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 through 20, Jesus said, all power is given me, all authority is given me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore. So Jesus is sending his disciples out, and what he wants them to do is he says, go make disciples of all nations. Now, the first step in making a disciple is they have to be saved. To be a follower of Christ, you have to literally be transformed. And once you're transformed, then you have the power to follow the Lord. Okay, so I want to do this morning, just give you, well, three. We probably won't get to the, the, the last two. We'll do, get on that next week. Uh, we'll go as far as we can this morning because um, I know you're tired and you want an afternoon nap, but there's no football, so, you know, you can enjoy it. Okay. Number one, why evangelize? Uh, number one, the heart of God, okay? The Bible says, go with me, if you will, to 2 Peter chapter 3, the heart of God. Verse 9, the Lord isn't really slow, being slow about his promises. Now, follow this. As some people think, King James says, as some people count, he is being patient for your sake. Now, notice the reason he's being patient. Notice the reason people are saying that he's not faithful with his promises. It says, 
he does not want anyone to be destroyed, but everyone to come to repentance. All right? So, so there's people that are accusing him of not being, you know, keeping his promises. And then he says, well, the reason I'm not keeping my promises as you think I'm not, the reason I, I'm, I'm being patient is for people to be saved, for people to repent. So go back, go back up to verse 4. It says this. They will say, and that's the scoffers, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? In other words, it's been 2,018 years. Why in the world hasn't Jesus Christ come? And sometimes we think that. I mean, the world's getting worse and worse, and especially the United States. And, and, and we look at the United States as it's going down, as, and we think the world's going down. But guess what? There's a lot of parts where a lot of people around the world's getting saved. Even though it's not happening here around the world, there's tremendous revivals taking place. God is moving. Just not so much here as we would like to, as they used to. We should see some great things. But still, God's moving in the United States. But God's heart, first of all, is he doesn't want people to be lost. The, 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 the idea here is that Jesus is waiting. So, so look back at the context, verse 9 again. The Lord isn't being slow about his promises, about him coming, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He wants everyone to be saved. All right, he wants everyone to repent and change their mind about Jesus Christ. Now, repentance means a change of mind, which always leads to a change of action, but don't get those confused. All right, you have to have the change of mind before the change of action. <clears throat> now, just, just when you think of God's patience and that he's waiting for people to be saved. Let's go, let's go back to the Old Testament. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 3. Look at verse 20. When you think about the patience of God, uh, verse 20. I'll get it here in a minute. Those who disobeyed God long ago. Now, notice this. When God waited patiently while Noah was building his boat. So, so God was waiting patiently as Noah was building the boat, the ark, and he was preaching to the crowd. Why was God being patient? He was, he was being patient so that people there would receive Jesus Christ as their Savior, understand and be saved. So he was waiting patient even in the Old Testament. You think about uh, Abraham. You think about Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, God decided he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. So what's he do? He says, I better go talk to Abraham about this. <laughs> he was a friend of God. And so God went to Abraham and said, hey, listen, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. I just want, you, I just want to let you in on what I'm going to do. And that preaches volumes to us if we're going to dive into that, all right? But so he told Abraham, and Abraham said, yeah, but Lord, what if there's 50 righteous? The Lord says, well, I won't destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. So it was great. Well, then Abraham came back and said, what about, he, he got to think, maybe there's not 50 righteous in the city. So how about, Lord, how about 45? And the Lord says, I won't destroy Sodom and Gomorrah if there's 45. How about 40, Lord? I mean, the Lord's being patient. He's going through this. He's, he's basically waiting. He's waiting for people to be saved. Let's go. 
Let's go back to 2 Peter. I know I'm just going all around, but this is just coming to my brain here. Go, 2 Peter chapter 3, look at verse 15. <clears throat> now, the context here is the heavens being on fire, melting, and the earth melting away, and there's a new heaven and a new earth. Okay? So the end of the world, as we would know it. Now, look at verse 15. And remember our Lord's patience, giving people time to what? To be saved, as Paul talked about. So even in the end times, God, he has this heart that he wants people to be saved. And so he's patiently, I'm not, when Jesus is coming, Christ is coming back, we're just going to wait a little bit longer. Not going to start the tribulation period, just going to wait a little bit longer. You know, I don't care what people think and about my promises. We're just going to, I just want people to be safe. So we see the heart of God. We see the heart of God in that he sent his son to die for mankind, that, that we might have have eternal life. We see the heart of God in the fact that when he created everything, hell, the Bible says, Matthew 25, was created for who? The devil and his angels. Even, even hell, God, God didn't create hell specifically for mankind to suffer eternity in hell. It, that, that wasn't God. The Bible says hell was created for the devil and his angels. The reason people go there is because they reject and they reject and they reject and they reject Jesus Christ as their Savior. But, but besides that, think about this. The heart of God, he, he wants people to be saved. So now we know what real life's passion is, and that's to get people saved, to, to see people saved, to be, just be used as a tool, as an instrument to pry people into the kingdom. Amen? Can I hear an amen? That, that, that's our... That's our number one priority as a church, but, but what about you? You're part of the church. You are the church, but how about you as an individual? Where do, do you have this passion? Do you have the same heartbeat that God has? Just a quick application. Do you care that that's the death clock? I really wanted to get it up there, but my wife chose to go out of town. I really wanted a death clock because you see the death, boom, 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 people dying. And the Bible says, wide is the gate that leads to hell, and many there be that enter, but narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there be. So with that death clock, when you see that going, man, that just reveals the, the, the vast amount of people that die with Christ. So, so the question is, how about you? How about me? Do I care? So then, then, I mean, we have to honestly address this today. Do we really even believe that when people die, there is this place of eternal suffering? Is there a place, I mean, is there really a place called hell? D.L. Moody said this. He, he, he actually didn't say it. Somebody else came to him and was, was cranking on him and <clears throat> And this guy told D.L. Moody, he said, if I believe what you guys believed at hell, I'd crawl on my knees upon broken glass to Chicago, the other end of Chicago, just to tell somebody about Jesus Christ. I mean, I mean, he had a point, amen? I mean, he had a point. Do we really genuinely believe? I mean, does the Bible actually teach that? I'm glad you asked that. Let's go to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14. Look with me at 
verse 11. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. The context is tribulation period. The people that, that receive the mark of the beast on their forehead and on their hand, they receive the mark of the beast, and they worship the false, the, the beast. They worship his statue, okay? That's the context of what's going on. And the smoke of their torment, now think about smoke. Smoke is something, when something's on fire, it just continues to go. Now, when the, when the fire's out, the smoke what? Stops. So the smoke that's coming up forever and ever and then dissipates and just keeps coming. So the torment apparently just continually comes up as a sign of their continual torment forever. Now notice what it says. For they have worshipped the beast and a statue and received the mark of his name. All right? So just, just the smoke, the evidence I'll go to Revelation chapter 20. See another one. Talks about eternal suffering. All right? Verse 10. Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. Then the devil who deceived them was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Let's just call it the lake of fire. Joining the beast and the false prophet. They will be tormented day and night forever. Just, just the thought, just, we're just asking a question. Is it really a place of eternal suffering? Uh, if you go back to the beginning of this chapter, we see before, at, at the end of the tribulation, before the millennial reign, thousand-year reign, Jesus comes down and he literally grabs the, the beast and the false prophet and throws them into the bottomless pit, the lake of fire. And they will be, they suffer for eternity. And then Jesus grabs the devil, chains him up, and throws him in before the millennial reign of Christ. And so he's there for a thousand years. In verse 7, Satan is released from the bottomless pit. He's released from the lake of fire. And he goes and he gets the rest of the world to come against Christ. And this is called the battle of Gog and Magog. And so there's this great battle at the end of the tribulation or millennial reign of Christ. And so then Jesus comes and grabs Satan this time and throws him into the lake of fire. That's what we just read, where he joins the beast and the false prophet. Now, think about this. So Satan was there for a thousand years, and he did not cease to exist. A lot of people say, well, when you go to hell, you're just kind of in this state, and you no longer exist, and hell really is just absence from God. You're no longer really living. Well, here, after a thousand years, God opens a pit. Satan comes out alive and well. And then at the end, where the battle of Gog and Magog, Satan, God, Jesus grabs Satan, throws him in there, and, and guess who's still there? Still living, still breathing, so to speak, kicking. It's the beast and the false prophet. Because it says, and he will join the beast, and the false prophet. Well, if they didn't exist, he wouldn't be joining them. So the idea is that, yeah, it truly is, according to Scripture, a place of eternal torment. And they will be suffering. That's what it says in verse 10 again. They will be tormented day and night forever. So just an idea. Do we genuinely believe? We're We're talking about our values. Do we genuinely believe? As a church, we do. 
We walk unified, that that's our number one priority, and we have seen the evidence. Can I hear an amen? Right down here on, remember that old song, Five Rows Back? How many remember that? Am I the only one? No. Well, five rows right there is Brandon just got saved about two weeks ago. Brandon, stand up. He just got saved. Can, I give him, can you give him a hand? He trusted Christ as his Savior. Right next to him is the better half. So why don't you stand up? Ashley, give her a hand. She trusted Christ as well. Amen? Give it up for her. All right. Thank you, guys. You can be seated. Just a couple of weeks ago, they trusted Christ. And so that is our value. Now, back on the back row, there's another guy. He's got, he's got a St. Louis Cardinal. Stand up, John. He got saved about a, m- a couple months ago, I believe. Amen? So give him a hand. So these guys are, we're excited that they're saved, and, and we want to get them in. Now, there's some tragedy that just happened in their life, but they just jumped into so So that you know, we want to get them saved, and we want to get them in discipleship class, and they started, but then some tragedy hit in their life, and they got pulled up. Like they told me today they're going to get back into discipleship. Amen? Amen? Just told me that today. So we believe in not just salvation and let them just die on the vine, so to speak. We, we like discipleship as well. All right, so just do we? Just a question to stick back in your head. Do you as an individual believe in that there is eternal, you know, suffering? One of the things that motivated my kids to pray for their grandmother all these years was the fact that grandma wasn't saved. And so they prayed for years and years as they were little and they got to see grandma get saved. Number two, obligation. Why should we evangelize? Obligation. Romans chapter 1, verse 14 through 16. Follow me in this. For I have a great sense. Now, Paul's talking here. He has, I have a great sense of obligation. Now, I really like the King James because the King James says, I am a debtor. I am in debt. He says there's this heavy debt. How many, how many, don't tell me if you're in your debt. How many hate debt? Raise your hand. You just hate it. I mean, you're, you're a servant. Well, that's what Paul says. He says, I'm in debt. Well, what are you in debt for? That's what he says. I'm, a, I'm obligated to the civilized world, and then this is, this is all of us, the uncivilized world. Amen? That's what Paul's referring to. Both civilized world and the rest of the world, which is uncivilized, to the educated and the... Un- so so he's, he's basically in debt to everyone. What's the problem? Look at verse 15. So I am eager to come to you in Rome to preach the good news. I am eager to come and preach the gospel. Why? Verse 16 says... For I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God that work, at work, notice that, saving everyone who believes, Jews and Gentiles. All right, so, so he's, in, he's under this heavy obligation to get the good news out. He's in debt. He feels like there's such a great need here. So, so here's, here's the thought. When someone is in a burning house or someone is drowning and we have the donut that we could throw to them to save their life, instantly we are under this obligation. We're, we're under this moral obligation. If, if the church was on fire and that was the exit and, and, and we knew that that was the way to go, we would be under a moral obligation. Don't go out that door, right? To tell them, all right? So... So the idea that Paul is saying, he's, he feels this heavy burden 
that he wants to share the good news with people so that people have an opportunity to be saved without the gospel. He goes like this a little bit later in Romans chapter 10. He says, how can people believe and be saved if they haven't heard? And how can they hear if nobody shares the message? And how can somebody share the message except they be sent? And so a lot of Christians say, well, I'm not sent, but the preacher is. I'm not sent, but the deacons are. I'm not sent, but the elders. I mean, the leaders of the church are the ones that are sent. Well, is that really true? So let's, let's, let's stay with Paul, and let's look at Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, this is going to be... This kind of some teaching, so hang on. Everybody still with me? If you need some coffee, there's some, there's some guys out there that come down with coffee and pour you a black cup of coffee. All right. Notice this. Now, Paul is talking to the Corinthian church. He said, he died for everyone so that everyone who received his new life will no longer live for themselves. Now, Everyone who receives Jesus Christ, they have this new life. No longer will they live for themselves, self-centeredness. What are they going to live? Instead, they will live for Christ who died for them and who rose again. So in other words, when a person gets saved and their life is transformed. How many of you here have been saved and transformed? Raise your hand. I mean, you really have been transformed. Raise your hand. Three of you. Good. So let's back up. Let's go to John 3.16. Let's start over. All right? So instead, they will live for Christ. So the bottom line is no longer are they live selfish lives when they trust in Christ. Next verse. So we have stopped evaluating Christ with the flesh and others through the flesh. Okay? Now we see things differently. We know him in this intimate way. Okay. Now verse 17. This means that everyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. Everyone that has received Christ, that say they're a follower, they have become a new person. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. There is a major transformation. All he's saying is the person that receives Christ no longer is he living for himself. He's been transformed. Man, he's living for Christ now. That's that's all he's saying. He's just reiterating it. Verse 18. All of this is a gift from God. The transformation, stay with me, the transformation is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ, now notice this, and has given to us this task of reconciliation. Now that's, that's a heavy thing. Okay, so, so we have this task of reconciliation. Who's we? Okay, going back to the, the verse 15. So the people that have been saved no longer live for themselves, but what he's doing here is he's describing the life of those who have been transformed. He's describing the, the follower of Christ. He's describing the person that, when, that he no longer is living for himself, he's living for Christ. Now, how does he live for Christ? This is what he said. You have been given the ministry, so to speak, of reconciliation. All right? Look at verse 19 now. Let's jump down there. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sin against them. And he gave us, who's us, the ones no longer living for self, but for Christ. Again, he's describing what it means to live for Christ. Is everybody with me? The person that lives for Christ is a reconciler. He's, he's, He's literally 
taking the wonderful message of Christ, and he's given it to people. Now, notice verse 20. Okay, this is where, where it all comes together. So we are Christ's ambassador. Who's we? The person no longer living for himself. The follower of Christ. Back in verse 15. If you're a follower of Christ, you're no longer living for yourself. You're living for Christ. And what's it look like? You are an ambassador of Christ. Okay, but, but, but notice this. What does an ambassador do? An ambassador, God is making his appeal through us. What's he saying? We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. That's what an ambassador does. He now stands in Christ's stead, and he is literally helping people to reunite together with the Father. Now, we don't have that much power, but we have the message. The power of the gospel transforms lives. And so when we introduce that message to them, we're literally saying, we're introducing the Father to people. We're, we're literally saying, come back. We're pleading, come back. Now, you can do that in all kinds of forms. You can do it in the form of a track. You can do it in the form of inviting to a small group, inviting to church, or inviting to receive Christ. There's a lot of different ways. But we can't shake the truth here that the person that has received new life is now no longer living for himself. You can't deny it. Now he's supposed to be an ambassador. He literally is standing between God and the world and helping people unite all of us. We are ambassadors. We literally speak, come back to God. That's powerful. We're not supposed to be, oh, man, this is good. I'm just going to keep it all to myself. Man, it's fantastic. And that's what verse 6 says. Chapter 6 says in verse 1. Fantastic. This is the idea. 2 Corinthians 5 or 6, 1. As God's partners. Okay? So the thoughts are still continuing. We put chapters in there to divide the words so we can find the verses, you know, divide thoughts and so on. But this thought goes back to chapter 5. What's this is? As God's partners, we, now, now, we beg you, Paul's begging you not to accept this marvelous gift in vain. You have received Jesus Christ as your Savior. You have been transformed. Don't let it stop there. Don't. You're not the end of the story. You're the beginning. You're the beginning of the story in your life. When I first got saved, I was the, I was the first one in the family. It didn't stop there. Kathy needed to be saved. Albert needed to be saved. Bob needed to be saved. Jimmy needed to be saved. Fleener needed to be saved. He needed to be saved, but who cared, right? No, <laughs> he's my stepdad, right? Okay. Okay. He finally got saved. He, he, he fell down. That's because of Judy witnessing to him over and over. But he fell down in front of the TV, and he was watching this, this uh, preacher on TV, and he fell down, he said, and he prayed he, 10 times to receive Christ, he said, because he thought, he told me, I didn't think God could save a wretch like me. 
And I said, amen. No, I didn't. <laughs> but God did save him. And literally, it was fantastic. It was, it was just a miraculous miracle what God did. I mean, Paul the Apostle is the same way. The story doesn't stop with us. So Paul's begging us. Think about pleading. Think about begging. He's begging us, don't just get saved and stop. The message is supposed to go on. Don't just ignore it. Fantastic stuff. I was talking to a preacher not too long ago, and we had talked for about three hours, just having a great time. And I'm serious, we, we, our, our spirits bear witness with one another. But he had the idea. There was this gal that came to him that wanted to get saved. And uh, I'm sure he wouldn't mind if I shared this with you. Uh, this gal wanted to get saved, and, and she leaned over to him, and she said, uh, and, and, and basically understand homosexuality is a sin. We believe that's a sin, and we believe it's from the Bible. Can I hear an amen? Can I hear an me? <laughs> There's one. Amen. Uh, so, so she leaned over to the preacher, and she said, but I like women. So he said, I, she wasn't ready to be saved. I mean, she, she never did get saved, you know. And, and so I looked at him, I said, well, why didn't you share with her the gospel and let her receive Christ? He said, because she wasn't willing to stop. I said, so I quoted a few scriptures and I said, you know what? The scriptures say she can't stop until the power of the Holy Spirit comes in her. She doesn't have the power to stop sinning. It's impossible. I didn't come to the Lord and give up smoking, give up drinking. I, I just came, God, I need you. I'm a mess. I believe that you died for me. I receive you. I mean, that's what I did. And my life was transformed. I had this huge void in my life, and the world tried to fill it. It just couldn't. But when God came out, because the power, the Spirit of God lives inside of me, and he's the one that radically changed. Why? The natural mind receives not the things of the Spirit of God, neither, neither can they understand them, and they are foolish, except for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so no matter what sin, I mean, we all sin. If you're in adultery this morning, you're just as guilty as the other one. I mean, sin, sin. There's no categories. So you, the Bible says the thought of foolishness is sin. Well, you didn't give up the thought of foolishness to get saved, did you? No. You're still a fool. We're all still a fool. Today we're a fool. How many are thinking, man, he's a fool up there? That's a foolish thought. All right? We, we, we are not sinless. And we can't be. The bottom line is the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Number three, grace. This is so good. Grace. Why should we evangelize the heart of God, the obligation, and the grace of God? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Just to, We all know this. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. We are saved as a gift. It was free to us. I remember several people, I mean, numerous people witnessed to me. I remember walking, walking to Anthony's house one, one day, and, and it was me, Anthony, and Clay, and we we're walking in Marsh Grocery Store parking lot. And as we're walking through the parking lot, there's this car that just zipped in there. It was late at night, and so it zipped in there, and three big old dudes got out. And I thought, oh, no. 
And they came over and they whipped out the Bible and they whipped out tracts and pamphlets and they started handing it. And, and this one guy says, you take him, take him, and I'll take him. And it's like, oh, you know. So they come out and they started witnessing to us and invited us to this pizza blast. Of course, it just went like this, but it was, it was just a seed, you know. And then I went out with date, date on a with date with Judy instead of being interested in smooching on me. That's all I was interested in. She, was, she, she whopped out the Bible and she started witnessing to me. First date. How dare you <laughs> sidetrack me? Amen. I'm just being transparent. But man, all of a sudden, what she said really caught my attention because I had this emptiness and I've been looking for a long time. And she says, You need to talk to my dad. So we went to her house and that was the last date I could actually have with her <laughs> once, he, once he took one look at me. You're done. But the point is, he, he, he shared a scripture with me. Uh, in hope of eternal life, that God that cannot lie. Everyone I felt at that time had lied to me. Not that they did, but I felt that way. And so there was this God that loved me and would never let me down. I mean, that caught my interest. It was several months before I got saved, but it really caught my interest. So the, then I went to church, and I heard the gospel over and over and over. But my, my point is, I, no one ever charged me for the gospel. No one ever charged me to say, hey, God loves you. He died for you. He sent his son to die for you to spill his blood. It, it, it's, it's, it was all free. It was all free. And not just was it free. Think of all the things that we enjoy as children of God, as followers of Christ. Think about all, all the things that you and I enjoy as his followers. I mean, literally, I can, I can look up to heaven and say, Father, and instantly the heavens part, and I'm ushered to the throne of the Father instantly, and he bends over, and he listens to my prayers. Wow. What a benefit. Didn't cost me anything, but it cost him everything. I mean, it's free. I mean, and then, then all the burdens that we go through and all the load that we carry, the Bible says I can just cast them on him, and he carries my burdens and then in exchange for my burdens, he gives me peace that passeth all understanding. He gives me joy. I have this fantastic life in spite of the fact that it started a little bit rocky. And there's, 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 some, there's some up and downs. But I have this fantastic life that he has given me. It's free. It's free. And so to not pass it out or to... Be focused on just ourselves, as Paul talked about, is very self-centered. Now, let's go back to the New Testament. Once Jesus died and rose again, how many of his followers died for him? Almost all of his disciples, except for one, was martyred. What were they martyred for? For being a Christian, for sharing the message. See, in America, we've got wrapped up in building churches. We've got wrapped up in building our kingdoms. Rather than caring about individuals. The New Testament understood they were not trying to try to build churches. They were having churches in homes. Think about Stephen. He's out there preaching are just sharing the message with the crowd of Jews. And he sees them get a little bit mad. What's the first sign? They clench their jaws. 
Now, if I was out witnessing somebody and I saw their jaw clench, you know, I'd do, oh, done. <laughs> How many would do that? I'm done. Well, number one, I don't want to get punched in the face. I don't want to get stoned. I don't want to get shot. I'm done. But also, I want to plant the seed later on, right? So not Stephen. No. They clenched their jaws. He kept preaching. They put their hands over their ears. Guess what he did? He just preached a little louder. <laughs> just a little louder. They grabbed him, threw him out of the city. When they threw me out of the city, as soon as my feet hit the ground, I'd be running. <laughs> How many are with me? I'm running. But not him. He stood up and he began speaking. See, now my point is he died so that people would hear. Them hearing the message was worth his life, he felt. And then, of course, who was the one listening when he got stoned? As he's calling on the Father, Paul the Apostle was there, and he heard Stephen ask the Father to forgive them, for they know not what they do. I mean, can you imagine somebody dying and thinking of you and thinking of you burning to hell? I'm going straight to heaven, but you're not. And I'm concerned for you, even though I'm getting hit with, I mean, hit with rocks dying. My eyes been crushed in, my head's been crushed in, and yet I'm praying for you. And then Paul, his life was transformed because of that. And then multitudes of churches were started and millions upon millions upon millions and even us. Stephen understood, I'm just a, I'm a small part of the story of God reaching mankind. And sometimes we think it's all about us. But you're this small part. So I end with this thought. Don't enjoy eternal life and this wonderful gift and then ignore it. You and I, every single one of us, are ambassadors ambassadors we speak to those around us come back to God that's our message in a nutshell let's pray father we just thank you so much for your word and, and Lord